Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Terra Incognita, the adventure podcast and the Rorima Expedition special features. You know, Rorima is where Arthur Conan Doyle's famous book, The Lost Worlds, is set. And you can totally imagine a dinosaur appearing. A remote location expedition is an exceptionally complex thing to organize and run. The prow is like the feature of the wall, just like... Only 3% of the Earth's surface is covered in rainforest. Uh, it's one of those trips that doesn't, doesn't kind of seem real. I've never done a big wall before and I've always kind of wanted to, but it's like finding a decent partner or team. In conversation, I only catch about half the words. <laughs> I'm not sure if I understand the Guyanese or the British better. <laughs> I've just been worrying about the snakes and the anacondas and the river crossings. And I'm kind of looking forward to it being hard in a way, just like a bit of an endurance test and see how I do. There are so few areas in the world like this forest that we're going into. Like my whole life in a way has been moving towards being able to do expeditions such as these. Welcome to Terra Incognita, the adventure podcast, and our fifth episode in the specialist series of the Rorima Expedition. I'm sitting down with Waldo Etherington again. Hello. At our uh, wall base camp at the bottom of Mount Rorima. Uh, we're about 500 feet above the jungle below us with the whole wall leading out overhanging above us. Uh, it's a nice little sheltered spot where the wind and rain don't really hit us too much and we're protected from the bad weather systems that flow through almost all day. Right now it's beautifully clear out, we can see for miles and miles there's a thick bank of grey cloud overhead um, but generally it's pretty good weather given what we've experienced over the last three weeks. In this episode we're going to sit down and talk to Waldo about the journey so far, recapping lots of what we've covered already and our progress on the wall. Nice. And it's dry. And it's dry. Awesome. Okay, where shall we start? So start by telling us what you've been up to today and where Leo and Wilson are right now. So I've just come down from what we've been calling an invisible ledge because we could see it from the photos and it's been totally invisible when we look at the wall. Um, they've got to the far left-hand side of invisible ledge and up two pictures. Um, we've got to a feature that we've called the anvil, which is an incredibly scary loose block that sticks out, don't know how far, probably a few feet from the wall and uh, are just getting into the hard terrain. We've reached the point where we've followed the 73 British route. Um, we've got to the top of Tarantula Terrace and we've broken out left and we found this 
awesome ledge systems leading onto Invisible Ledge um, that's brought us right around, bang through the middle of the prow um, and towards the kind of the left-hander ret. Um, I think they've just made the call to push right from that point and not go around the aret. Um, maybe that's partly due to the weather systems that seem to be coming in from this aspect, the easterly aspect. Um, so if we stay sort of behind that aret, hopefully it'll be a bit more sheltered. But it looks steep and it looks really hard. Uh, so I've just been re-rigging some of the ropes. We had quite a bad core shot, so I've just got that out of the system. And we've hauled up six litres of water. One of the bags was open or burst. Mr. GV Dan forgot to close the lid. Uh, so we've got five bags, five bags of water up there. Um, and the ledge is pretty clean and pretty flat. And we've got some bolts rigged for the porter ledges. Um, <clears throat> so I've just been faffing basically all morning, pulling up little bits of rope, tying knots, making everything neat. Because when uh, Wilson and Leo move at the pace they do, often their knots aren't dressed. There's too much slack in the system. <laughs> they do, they've done a really good job, but I was just neatening it up and, uh, and getting as much rope as we can up there. Because we're, we're pushing quite high now. Ace, and um, we'll come back to where we are on the wall and talking about all of that, but let's backtrack a long way and talk about um, the last bits of the jungle. Because we did a mm. podcast with Leo in base camp talking about the final days, but your perspective of it is likely very different. So yeah. how was the jungle? I mean, the jungle has been everything I expected and more has been absolutely brilliant. Uh, we were pretty blessed to have incredibly good weather for the first part of it. It meant that we could all get into the groove and work out our sleeping systems and camp arrangements and how to pack our bags properly and fit everything in. Um, and having dry weather was a massive, massive bonus for that because it meant we could really fly ahead, make good progress and stay in relative comfort. Uh, the rains started as we started approaching the prowl proper. Um, and the trek has been incredibly hard actually. From up here, you can see the, uh, the coal that we passed um we came right the way around that mountain and just basically as far as the eye can see we've walked a hell of a long way about 100 kilometers through thick primary forest um we had a couple of trail cutters that went ahead uh, just to kind of scope the route um but that's just a handful of people running through the forest and not leaving much of a trace so we've been <clears throat> in the thick of it really over dead logs and tree roots and slime and moss and chasms and huge cliffs and just wiggling our way through the terrain um, and towards the last couple of days we had some some big climbs lots of uphill um, and yeah it got harder and harder basically progressively harder uh, we found a base camp on the col which I think is also where one of the camps from the British expedition was um, we managed to get our hammocks up there, but the trees were noticeably smaller um, and the vegetation starts to get a lot more, how to explain it, like spongy. Everything just breaks underfoot and the jungle doesn't really fight back. It just swallows you up and, and sucks you in. You push on something and it gives way and it's just <laughs> up to your neck and slime and moss and dead branches. Um, so yeah, it's got progressively harder really. Um, from that we had a really steep climb. Um, almost a kilometre basically to advanced base camp isn't it um, and most of that uphill <clears throat> you're kind of climbing vertical tree tunnels and these it's kind of it's like a bamboo it's some sort of monocotyledon that just hangs down over everything and once you get up and down a few times that turns into sort of a natural rope um, and you're kind of always on this like net of vegetation and everything's really spongy and slippery and wet and muddy and uh, 
yeah, it's kind of my favourite style of climbing, really. <laughs> like, <laughs> I hate to say it, but I'm probably going to be sorry to, uh, to leave that now that we're on the wall proper. We've got a couple of little loads to carry down from advanced, carry up from advanced base camp. Um, but it's just an awesome, awesome bit of terrain to get around in. You just properly have to stay four-footed, four-wheel drive mode, and just clamber your way up through this incredible mass of vegetation. And uh, yeah, so we did that. We found another HLZ, a helicopter landing zone that I can see from here. Um, and those are quite important because we are so remote that if anything serious happened, uh, walking out wouldn't be an option. Um, we'd need to get a helicopter in and that's no easy task because of this thick cloud bank we've got around us and how just changeable the weather is. Um, Rheim is so massive that it seems to almost create its own weather systems. Um, the prow that we can see stretching out in front of us, which is the ridge line that comes down from the prow proper, stretches out into the distance. On the left hand side of it, there's almost always thick cloud and you can't see anything. On the right hand side, it's totally clear. Um, <coughs> so, yeah, we're now... It was hard. It was really, 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 really hard getting those loads up and down that, up and down that bank. So we have to sit, sit back, keep shuffling, messing GV Dan shot up. Um, yeah, it's just absolutely knackering. It's like doing a marathon with like a massive bag the size of you strapped to your back that keeps on getting caught on everything and everything slippery and your arms get tired, your feet get tired, your legs get tired, you get hungry. Um, because everything's so wet it's, it's actually quite hard to stay hydrated so i think a few of us like have gone down over the days so just like go to bed with a bit of a headache and and uh, yeah feeling a bit worse for wear um but it's partly because of just how physical it's been it's been the hike wasn't exactly easy and then the approach the approach after that just absolute beasting so um i think we're all in that mode now of we've kind of found our pace where you don't want to push it too fast and knack yourself but you can kind of plod on <laughs> with, a, with however much load you've got and keep going um and i think everyone's found that groove really well uh so yeah now we've just got a couple of loads left down at advanced base camp um which is takes about eight minutes to get down and about half an hour to get up with a load on your back um a couple more loads to bring up here and then everything we need essentially is on the wall and from this point, it looks like we're going to do one giant haul all the way up to Invisible Ledge, which will bring this camp that you can see here up 200 meters or so um, into this incredible, it's kind of like a hollow chest area in the wall with this ledge that cuts straight through the middle of it. So it's pretty sheltered um, and just ridiculously flat and surprisingly dry for where it is. Um, and it's going to give us another another view even higher than we've got already which i'm looking forward to so logistically why was it necessary to or what have we had to do to get everything from base camp to advanced base camp um logistically it's been just absolutely insane the amount of kit that is absolutely pivotal to the success of this expedition needs to be divided up into loads that can be carried and everything has to be labelled and during the day all of those loads change because we take batteries from one bag and food from another and so staying on top of what's where is like no easy task um, and I think basically it's down to Leo's tenacity with organising expeditions and his experience of it has given him this just insatiable drive to just have everything faffed to the highest 
most order, um, which makes everybody's lives easier. Uh, and that has been going on for months and months and months. <laughs> it has not stopped. Um, and it's actually, I think, literally six months since, or longer than that, since we've been talking about this expedition. You can tell his mind has just been whirring and he's been constantly on it, like dialing every single little detail in. And it was just two, two days ago, I think, when we broke off from Tarantula Terrace, we got into some steeper terrain, we found the ledges, and Leo realised we were like onto the most impressive climb on the mountain. And the fact that it's just no given. And I, for the first time in a while, I saw like this huge weight come over his shoulders, a big smile on his face. He, just, he was elated. He was like ranting about this huge sea of rock above us. We don't know if we're going to be able to get past it. And uh, yeah, it's the happiest I've seen him for a while. I think now that everything's where we need it and we're in go time basically or in send it mode i think the weight's just come off in come off in in terms of of knowing that we've got our system up to scratch everybody knows what's what and uh and we're ready to charge basically so um yeah we're at a good point but yeah logistically getting the bags up here essentially what it's meant is divvying everything up into carryable loads putting as much as you possibly can in your backpack and setting off at the base and getting here as quick as you can uh and then turning around going back and filling up another bag um so yeah, it's just been full on an absolute slog, absolute mission. But yeah, it's good. It's what we came here for. And between base camp and advanced base camp, it's like a three-stage process, right? We've got mm. the vertical slime forest. Yeah. Then we've got what is called, a, or what the 73 trip called El Dorado Swamp. Yeah. Which the locals insist on calling a savanna. Savanna, yeah. For some reason. <clears throat> and then there's the Bromeliad um, sort yeah. of hill. Can you yeah. describe the vegetation on Bromeliad Hill? It's wild. It's as though Arthur Conan Doyle had done this journey before he wrote that book almost. The, the vegetation is just prehistoric, like wild, crazy, different plants and flowers and leaves. Never seen anything like it, to be fair. I've seen bromeliads before and eggmeas and, and epiphytic orchids, but here is another, another world. I haven't seen half of these plants before and they're just the funniest, strangest looking things you've ever seen in your life. So it kind of changes from forest, small forest, I guess, limited in growth by the fact that it's so exposed on the prow as you get higher and higher and higher everything gets smaller and smaller and smaller um colder and colder and colder and wetter and wetter and wetter um and the ecology kind of changes with that change in, in the weather essentially um and you end up in this like misty like where the ropes start basically is the, the vertical part and you're climbing up all through these trees and there's loads of mud and loads of moss and as you get higher and higher it gets like more misty and you get just different types of epiphytes. The epiphytes seem to grow basically and get bigger the higher you get. And by the time you get out of the vertical forest, oh, radio comms, radio from comms. The boys above. Um, you get onto, you get onto the savanna, um, and then it's just yeah, brutal muddy slog. But then there's after like sort of two hundred meters, you get into this. Uh, it's like a bromeliad forest. Imagine the top of a pineapple times like a thousand, and then. It's like they're made out of polystyrene. You put your hands on them and they just like crunch and just break and fall away. And they're like overhead height, some of these plants. <laughs> to get through it the first time, it was just like hacking with a machete and super satisfying because you can swipe out one of these plants in like one stroke with a machete and just like crunching our way through this like just insane wild vegetation. I've never seen anything like it. It is like, it is a lost world. It is a lost world. And, I know there's an incredible amount of endemism in Guyana and for sure hundreds of thousands of species of insects and plants that have never been discovered before. 
And up here, given the uniqueness of this situation and this mountain, I'm sure we were hacking our way through plenty totally undiscovered like new species and it's pretty exciting. It's not in many places that you're worried about getting bitten by something and then it crosses your mind that if you do get bitten, there's a good chance you won't know what it is. You boys are right up there. Oh, giant rocks flying down. Good thing we're sheltered. Not very far away from us. Boys are clearly making progress. Um, so yeah, it's been wild, absolutely wild, wild place. It feels like you're in like Never Never Land or Dinosaur Land or something. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. Can you describe Advanced Base Camp? So Advanced Base Camp is, I think it wins the award for the most ghetto camp yet. It's super muddy, super wet, super cold, super windy. Um, and there's no flat surface anywhere so we did a lot of like hacking down this bamboo stuff and trying to pad out areas to, to, to make room for our tents uh we rigged, rigged the parachute as like a kit store room and then quickly found out the parachutes aren't waterproof um <laughs> and then the way that they're constructed means you can't tension them no matter what angle you pull them from uh so that gave us a good few hours of amusement and then we had <laughs> a drippy <laughs> wet cold storeroom so we re-rigged the tarp down there a blue tarp that we found that was i think probably stashed from one of the older expeditions who knows when um we found some buckets as well so we've reused that tarp all in and strung it up and it's given us a bit more of a shelter down there but it's wet um and difficult to operate in uh so now having pushed up onto like a wall camp proper it's, it's a lot nicer and then sort of finally in terms of where we've got up to can you describe visually what this camp is like so this camp is stunning. I won't start with the view in front of me. When I look up, I see this kind of U-shape arch above me with these different series of roofs sticking out. So we're totally overhung. Um, there's a ledge system that's at its widest point, maybe a meter and a half, um, and it's dry and pretty flat. It looks like, I think the British expedition and maybe Mark and a few other people that have been here before have done a bit of work to this ledge and moved some rocks around, made a coffee table we've got fried rock just behind me which is an awesome little place to sit uh we have a rope strung from run one end to the other that's fixed at various points which is essentially a safety line um and our portal edges are hanging hanging up in in these sheltered locations two to my right and, and two to our left um and we've kind of got here without climbing it's been a vertical mission hauling bags and getting here and there's a couple of spicy little steps as the terrain gets steeper over this side um but essentially you can walk from the top of the scramble up to the prow, walk around this ledge system and get to where we are now. Where we are now, and uh, to our right, we've got a lower wall that's probably a, a thousand foot with these five waterfalls pouring off it down into the forest below. Uh, below us is a vertical cliff for yeah about 500 feet. Then it steps along another little formation that leads onto the prow. Then it drops down again, probably by about a thousand feet, and then the jungle just sort of gently dips away in all directions away from us um and we've got these incredible tapuis wayasapu um and marima these two formations over to our right to our east and as i'm saying this a huge bank of this white misty wet cloud has just rolled in it happens so quick it's a matter of seconds the temperature drops and the visibility just disappears <laughs> and then 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Just get surrounded by this gray fog. It's quite surreal. But um, yeah, knowing me, I'll probably still get sunburned. <laughs> <laughs> and for those who don't have any history with them can you describe what a porter ledge is and what it's like to live in for sure so a porter ledge is essentially a tent that hangs so you have a square or rectangular frame that can fit two people lying down on it um, and it's just hollow tubes make up the outside and tension fabric makes up the inside um, and that hangs off a point so each corner of that has a, a, a little cord coming from it and that goes up about six foot to one point and at one point you clip into your anchor um, and then you have a rain fly, this waterproof coat that sort of surrounds the whole thing. Um, and when two people are in it, it's pretty cramped and it's pretty precarious, basically. If you move without telling your partner that you're moving, then the whole thing can do a, a 180 flip and you can end up sideways and everything can fall out the portal edge. So everything needs to be clipped on at all times. And uh, it needs, it's a bit of a... It's a bit of a coordinated effort getting to bed at night. You have to get your mate to kind of come up close to you for a minute while you get your stuff on and then go to the other side and then get your weight on and then balance it equally. And uh, usually it ends up with one of you being slightly head down and trying to sneakily shuffle your weight up again. Um, but yeah, super cramped, but the view and the situation of these ledges make it all worthwhile, really. It's uh, at the end of the day, you can get a good night's sleep in them and stay dry. And it's a little nest, a hanging nest. Unless you find a spider in there, right? Unless you find a spider, which happened the other night. I was just getting into bed and Wilson, who's a, he's a pretty, he's a pretty manly man, really. He's pretty tough. And he <laughs> let out a little scream and then said that there was a vicious spider that had just crawled into the recesses of a portal ledge, uh, which resulted in about two hours of spider hunting, not being able to find it, uh, and then found two more. So, yeah, not, not, not totally free of insects, but, but a nice little sanctuary nonetheless. So speaking of Wilson, he hasn't featured much in the podcast and no. we haven't actually spoken too much on camera because he always seems to be up on the wall somewhere. Or... Yeah, he never really speaks unless he's got something important to say. Yeah. <laughs> he's one of those guys. <laughs> so can you do the job for him and talk about who and what he is, I guess? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I first met Wilson when I was doing a rope rescue course over in America. Um, I was cycling this crappy bike sort of 3,000 miles and uh, Wilson was on the course and seemed to already know everything about the knots I was learning and the new systems I was learning and um, he kind of struck me first off as kind of like a character out of Mad Max he had this crazy kind of sun bleached desert sandblasted hair and uh, these big gauges in his ears and tattoos and he's just like this kind of wildness this kind of fire inside him and I think that's we both clicked straight away in terms of I think we just we both resonated with some part of the other person and uh and yeah from day one really we've got along like a house on fire and uh we we've, we've pushed each other well he's pushed me more than anybody else i know <laughs> and i think given the missions we've done together not always successful 
Um, I think we've been through quite a lot together um, and the friendship's just got stronger and stronger, really. Um, but above his sort of just insatiable drive to just go on adventures and push himself in every part of his life to his absolute limit. Um, he's also an incredibly good rock climber. He's climbing like 514 now. Um, and the reason he's good is because of that exact same mentality, that like headspace he's got, the focus he's got, the drive he's got. Uh, you don't see all those things in, in one person very often. Um, and he's got them all to a very high standard and he really knows how to push himself. I remember this one point we were just climbed El Capitan in Yosemite and uh, we were like five pitches from the top. We were both absolutely shattered. Uh, it was dark. We got to this kind of sketchy belay. Uh, we didn't really know how far we had to go and Wilson set off looking pretty frazzled. And I just set up to him. I said, hey, Wilson, man, like, be careful. All right, this is when people get hurt. And he turned around and he was like, this is when I shine. <laughs> just <laughs> set off into the darkness. And yeah, that kind of sums up Wilson, basically. The harder it gets, the better he gets. Yeah. And his role here? So his role here uh, is basically as a proper hard climber, quester, to push the ropes up, uh, to climb the stuff that looks too scary for everybody else. <laughs> um, well, Leo obviously knows what he's doing. And like in terms of this style of climbing, adventure, big wall climbing, where you don't really know where you're going and it's complicated and hard, there's no one else better in the world at it than Leo, in my opinion. Um, but Wilson has an incredible amount of experience pushing new routes and working in terrain that he's not been on before. Um, and together they make a pretty formidable team. Um, we've been making like insane progress and I've just been shuffling up behind them, hauling the old load, sorting ropes out. Um, and those guys have just been hard at it. Um, so he's here really as <laughs> just to make it happen, to get to the top. <laughs> and what skill set do you need to be able to, you know, on site, free climb in an environment like this um it's a pretty dynamic skill set you need actually um and that's the good thing about wilson is that he's not just an incredibly good rock climber but he understands how to navigate this terrain and what to do if something goes wrong uh which is kind of always on my mind it's like what what, what if what if the lead climber knocks himself out and he's stuck on a piece up there and how do we get him down from that position um, how long is it going to take? Like, where do we get rescues from? All of that kind of stuff. Um, but being able to do that level of personal skills and team skills rescue and being able to navigate and use the equipment like that is takes many, many years of practice and trial and error and use. Um, and it's a skill set that takes an incredibly long time to, to develop, basically. And he's been doing it a very long time and he's also got a really good headspace and... and um understanding of how everything works um similar to me really his entire adult life has been devoted to hanging around on, on this equipment and using it and, and make, doing sort of complex rigging um so yeah and you also need to be sort of pretty chilled in the face of adversity which uh, everybody on this team is and so why can't leo and wilson just get to the bottom of this and just go to the top by themselves, you know, in terms of water and yeah. rope fixing and stuff, why? Um, so if those guys set out right now from where they are, it would take them way longer than a day to reach the top. They'd run out of water in about an hour. <laughs> um, they'd run out of static rope from an invisible ledge uh, in probably about the next 20 minutes, um, which means they'd be 
losing their connection to the last delay. Um, and they, they wouldn't make it basically. Like a ball of this size needs different tactics. You can't just set up there with a few quick drawers and a couple of cams. Um, I think we've got four racks of DMM cams and then dragonflies and nuts and hexes. It's a lot of equipment to, to do what we're doing. Um, we could do it with less if it was a smaller team. Um, but even with a smaller team, the amount of water you need and food you need means that you're going to be hauling anyway. And if you're going to be hauling, you may as well haul a heavy load and have a few extra people and have a, have a party time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll come on to the big team in a minute, but yeah. um, can you talk a bit about water? It's something, you know, it might not sound that interesting, but I yeah. think it's something people overlook. Yeah, totally. It's, it's really easy to overlook, even if you're sort of experienced. Um, it goes really quickly when you've got a big team drinking water. Uh, we're using about 30 litres a day um, on the big days. Yeah, the, unsurprising really. Okay, I'll set off with some more static rope and, uh, and bring it up to you. I'll be about 40 minutes. Awesome, you're the man. Well, that's good news. So Leo's going full steam ahead as usual. Jesus, when he gets a bit between his teeth, I, I couldn't climb that terrain like half the speed if there were like bolts and clip drawers in place. I'd, yeah, he's quick. So uh, that's good news. What was I saying? I'm excited. Water. I've got a few <laughs> water, more questions yeah. and then you can uh, go. So yeah, water is like a massive issue basically because without it, you get dehydrated and die. Basically in three days, you're, you're, you're pretty done for if you don't have any water. Um, and moving around and being as sort of mobile as we have been with our equipment and hiking through the forest has meant that at every point we stop, we need to work out how much water we have, how much water we need. We need it for cooking, we need it for drinking, we need it for washing. Um, and it all has to be filtered and sterilized and taken from a decent source. Um, so it's no mean feat, really. Uh, and that was kind of the crux. One of the things that we thought would potentially shut us down on this wall was the fact that if we couldn't find water up here, it would mean carrying it from who knows where down on the prow, uh, which have added days, if not weeks, to them getting all the equipment up here. Um, but here we've managed to find a couple of little drip pools around the corner that we've dug out. Um, so you can get a pretty clean water from there. And then we've just been filtering, filtering the particles out with a basic filter siphon thing um, and then dropping chlorine pills into it. Um, and that's, that's the system we're using really, but it's, yeah, one of the most important things. And it's still time consuming, right? And it's super, super time consuming. So just, even though we found a really close water source, we've got GV down the cameraman here. He's all day today, he's been slogging back and forth with these giant water containers on him that weigh about 10 kilos each. Um, and I think, how many litres have you done today, Dan? 80? Yeah, it's 80 litres today. About 80 litres by hand, filled up from like a tiny little pool this big. Um, so yeah, it just takes a couple of people to be on it every day, basically. And um, you've got to get your wet boots on, <laughs> get your wet shoes on, <laughs> get your wet socks on, and walk all the way over there through all the mud and carry all the water back. It's, it's not easy. Cool. And then I know you've got to go, so I'll try and keep these next bits short. So, <coughs> um, can you describe the route so far as we've taken it? Yeah, the route so far, it's been wicked. It's been like a proper little quest through history. We've gone up the British route, uh, these big corner systems for like three pitches. Uh, <clears throat> and Willie Bob and, uh, and Leo freed every pitch of that. So they freed all the way up to Tarantula Terrace. Um, and then it kicks back a bit and it gets a lot steeper and a lot harder. 
Um, there's an old bolt ladder that Willie Bob initially went up, um, and they will Wilson and Leo kind of looked at the potential of free climbing that said it looked super hard there might be something out to the right um and that's when anna stepped up and said that she could give it a go um and she did it yesterday <laughs> this super hard route that basically linked tarantula terrace to the ledges that we were trying to get to um and if we couldn't do that free then the route wouldn't be free to a, to a high point um and anna had a pretty frustrating day on it just trying these just hard sharp small little crimps and these big moves um but it's pretty cool, like really cool watching her style of climbing and just working out piece by piece. And then yesterday, just she went full send mode and, and did it, climbed it, free climbed it to the belay, which means the route is still free. <laughs> Carries on from there. Oh, uh, yeah, sorry. Oh, yeah, the route. So gets up, so past Anna's pitch up to the belay. And then you've got this traverse for about, probably about 50 meters in total you've got like a 20 meter traverse onto these different ledges um and then you abseil out and climb up another sort of 20 meters um these wild pitches that are kind of in this the wall just drops away below so it's super overhung and mega mega exposed um a couple of pitches up to invisible ledge um and that's just this wild flat ledge that goes another kind of 15 20 meters that way um you step off the left side of that into this kind of diagonal pitch that goes up and around the corner onto this loose block um, and that point we're probably we're over a third of the way up the wall I'd say at that point um, and it's a pretty damn impressive location just you're on this the sticky out bit of the prow basically you're right up there in like the most wild position you could possibly imagine and from there on you've got even more reason to see terrain above you so yeah hard hard going and the boys have covered a few pictures today as well right yeah they've covered a few pitches that was a radio just saying that leo's going a lot faster than they expected um i had a little peek around the corner earlier and it just looked absolutely wildly scary and hard and steep um but leo's probably sniffed out a line and there uh, seems like he's questing up uh they've only got about 20 meters of static left and i've just hauled up at a fresh 100 this morning um stacked that in cascading loops at the belay uh so i'm just gonna go grab the end of that and bring it up to those boys and then last big question for me is um can you talk a bit about troy and edward and their journey so far and how they've been doing for sure uh troy and edward are made from different stuff they are some of the strongest just soundest individuals i've ever met edward met us right at the beginning in philippi um and it was kind of hectic trying to work out who was carrying loads how many people we needed where the bags were going if we trusted the people we were employing kind of there was a there was a shifty kind of vibe there and edward from the beginning just stepped up and introduced himself and he was just this sort of wise steady knowledgeable dude it's like oh yeah i've been up to mamarima before i've walked up the prow i was there on this expedition <laughs> so uh the fact he's been up here before and has kind of done this stuff before and worked with climbers before was just an incredible bonus and on top of that he's just this incredible just he's got a really nice pace to him and this openness and this interestedness and he's not at all cocky he's just yeah, just a really nice, one of the most remarkable people I've ever met. And uh, Troy is his nephew. Uh, he's 39 years old. Edward, sorry, Edward's 56 years old, by the way. Edward Samuel Johnson. Um, and he's just insanely fit for his age. Um, and then his nephew, Troy, is 39 years old. He's been in here for 24 days before we got here. He was one of the original line cutters and he stayed out at base camp on the prowl. So he's been in the forest for a hell of a long time. Um, and straight away, Edward was on it with the ropes. So had a really nice technique and a, and a good, good sort of thirst for learning new stuff. And then Troy 
was just super, super keen. He took me aside one night and said that he couldn't sleep the night before because he was wanting to come up the wall with us. And and he was like super, super excited about potentially being able to join our team and it had never been mentioned. Um, and so he sort of chatted it through and we did actually bring enough equipment for it to make that happen. Um, and yeah, when we got on the ropes, he was just like insanely strong and agile, like a proper natural, natural with this kind of terrain and, and with the equipment, to be honest. Um, and it just makes a change, you know, having some like in, in the indigenous knowledge and the people that are from this area to, to come into these different places and sort of conquer these mountains and climb these things and fly off again. You don't really leave much behind you other than the inspiration you can try and push towards others and the appreciation of the natural world and what we have around you and how special this is. But I think there's nothing that highlights that more than to involve and incorporate people whose life is about this place and about the mountains that we're climbing in and the trees that we're walking past. Um, and so, yeah, me personally, I really appreciate having their company and their knowledge and their perspective. And it's been a real treat teaching them how to few more up ropes and um and bringing them up to, to our high point um yeah they've got a really good headspace <coughs> for it and i think they're going to have a, a pretty wild time to the top you reckon they'll get to the top um yes i do if it continues like it has been i do i think if there's some kind of scary traverse rope pitches you have to do up there um and i think if they don't bottle it on them um then they'll get to the top it's just about keeping them super safe, basically, and, and making sure that they're equipped, their knowledge and their skills are, are good enough to, to keep them safe when no one's there. Sweet. I guess we'll leave it there for now. Cool. Yeah, You've got a job again. to do. Got to go what are you doing? Well, 300 metres and give the static rope to Leo. Uh, yeah, how long is it? It's about 200 metres now um, with all the wheels. And then once we've hauled up to this ledge, we're striking all the ropes, I believe, and pushing on even further. Yeah. So... Uh, the rest of us have got to go and fetch loads from Advanced Base Camp. Yeah, exactly. Good luck with that, boys. It's <laughs> all go. Dry shoes on and go up. It's all go. Yeah. Cool. So, um, yeah, making progress. Making progress. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk. I really hope you've been enjoying the features that we're sending out live from the jungle. I have very limited access to comms here, so I haven't been able to see any of the feedback at all. But uh, Pip assures me there's a stream of messages waiting uh, upon my return, which is ace. Um, Berghaus, who supported this expedition, have very kindly given us a jacket to give away to one of you guys, and you can find out how to win that on Instagram. And as is always the case, if you enjoy the podcast and are enjoying this uh, specialist series from Mount Roraima, then do tell your friends and family about it and tweet and retweet and share it and do all of that stuff that we do back in the modern world, which luckily for us, we don't have access to out here for a month. Um, ah, and that's oh, all. And <laughs> Waldo's back. Right, I'm signing off for now. Sweet. We've got stuff to do. Nice one. See you later, Waldo. See you later, Pikey. Cheers for the interview. <laughs> <laughs> You're such a reprobate. What's wrong with you?